Hey everyone, welcome to the Ambit Podcast in which we discuss tech and entrepreneurship. Today, the 19-year-old startup founder Campbell Barron joins us to discuss his company Mantra and how it makes it easier to create video courses. First off, how are you doing today, Campbell? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Before Mantra, you ran a podcast interviewing CEOs, founders, and VCs, and then built your TikTok account to 100K followers, which was later acquired by Workweek. Would you mind walking through that journey and what gave you the idea to create a podcast and then a TikTok account? Yeah, sure. Um, so I would say that uh, I think my interests generally in in the world of business and, and startups have been in the center of, of the intersection of media and technology. And so when I when I started getting really interested in podcasts at large and the genre of podcasts at large, um, it just became you know the, the natural next step in my kind of like entrepreneurial journey when I was relatively young was like, hey, I should probably just start my own. Um, and it's a thought that that many people have had. Even back in 2018, podcasts were starting to become way more well-known. There was kind of the beginning of the meme, which is like, oh, I should start a podcast. But I, I thought that and decided I was going to kind of going to go right into it and knew that I wanted to use it as an opportunity to kind of test my content creation skills or uh, develop my content creation skills but also be in a situation where I could potentially have conversations that I would really enjoy and potentially have conversations with folks that I would probably not be able to talk to on any given day, right? These entrepreneurs, these heroes of mine that I really want to speak with, um, that was part of the goal, I would say. Um, so, you know, I kind of just went right into it. I just knew what I, you know, figured out that the best you know, way to make this happen would be to just cold email a bunch of founders I looked up to, you know, hundreds of them at the time, um, and ended up interviewing 12 founders like uh, Chris Saka uh, and the founders of SoulCycle and Dollar Shave Club and Headspace, uh, to name a few. Um, and, you know, did that over an eight-month journey, right? So it took quite a bit of time, funded this via a sponsor. I, I got Skillshare, who, who funded the first season of the show. So I was able to travel to these destinations and have these conversations. And ultimately, I would say that kicked off my kind of interest and deep dive into technology and startups um, as a result of these conversations. I left each conversation feeling so inspired by these, by, by the, by the contents, by the, by the person themselves um, and by the process of kind of cold emailing, you know, not getting, I, I was not uh, in, in tech prior to this. My parents are not in tech. These were not introductions, right? These were just purely cold emails. I didn't know anyone going into this, but you know, you interview a few people and, and it goes well and they're generous and they'll introduced you to a few people and that kind of spirals on its own. And so I went into this not knowing anyone in tech and, and came out having a network in tech. Um, and that was meaningful. And a few, you know, a group of people who like listening to the show, nothing crazy, but um, numbers that, you know, I was, uh, I was relatively happy with as it pertains to like how people were consuming the content, et cetera. Um, but again, nothing, nothing viral, much smaller than my TikTok account. But at the end of the day, the conversations really, uh, really were the reason I was doing this. Um, and then actually downloaded TikTok as a, as a medium that was interesting to me to promote the show. That was kind of the original idea. But what I ended up realizing was that there was this group of people, this uh, Gen Z group of people interested in startups that I was not really aware of before I started uh, or downloaded TikTok that were, that was all interested in kind of this business news genre, right? This figuring out the current events as it pertains to startups. 
and ultimately kind of stumbled upon that that niche and uh, went all in kind of converting these TechCrunch articles, which I found relatively dry into content that would be engaging uh, for a Gen Z audience, including myself, almost like a, a CNBC, but for a younger audience. And that account grew to 100,000 followers. So nothing crazy, but a decent size in tech and was acquired by the media company um, Workweek last summer. And following that, I, I decided I really want to kind of go all in on, on some form of tech product and ended up founding Mantra. But, you know, I would say the parallel was between the podcast and um, the TikTok account and Mantra was that I'm just obsessed with the intersection of media and technology. And the podcast helped me break into tech. The TikTok helped me hone my storytelling. And Mantra is really testing my abilities to, to run a tech startup and, and build an actual product. That's awesome. And you used to be a kid uh, producer for CBC. How did that experience play into creating your news TikTok account? Well, um, I would say that was probably my, my first formal uh, media experience, maybe first formal journalism training, perhaps. The story goes as follows, which was, uh, it's a little, it's kind of funny, actually. Um, so I, um, when I was 13, I had this idea for a show. Uh, where I wanted to like interview kid entrepreneurs. And the problem with that show in, in hindsight was that there just weren't really enough per, per se. Um, and I'm not sure the audience would have been big enough. Could have been interesting, who knows. But I, I really didn't want to do this by myself. I, you know, I also was in like, I don't know, what are you when you're 13? I think I was maybe, I think I was probably in the eighth grade. I was, I was pretty young, I would say, and just you wanted to do the show. And so I got a meeting uh, with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I, I'm uh, from Toronto. I grew up in New York, but I, I moved back to Toronto. And so this kind of, when I was in Toronto um, for the coming back, I, I um, got a meeting with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and I pitched them on the show. I was terrified. It was my first real pitch. I put together like a pilot episode that I made myself in addition to kind of like a briefer document that I handed to the producer. And, you know, assumed that like I'd hear back from them and maybe the show would get made and that never happened. But I just kept following up and kept staying in touch with him. Um, the guy who I pitched, uh, I still remember his name. His name was Drew. And Drew, uh, you know, was really helpful, gave me a tour of the whole building. I just felt really um, uh, pr appreciated, perhaps. And he was just very nice. And so he kind of kept replying to my emails and said, hey, look, yeah, no, we're not, re not really going to do the show. But like, you know, I would like to intro you to um, this person named Lisa, who's working on this, uh, this kids news site that they're just thinking about getting up and running. And maybe you could help her with that. And so I was really interested in media at this time. I was also interested in startups, but um, definitely like probably 60% media over startups at that point. And was like very interested in uh, doing anything really, because I was doing a bunch of freelance gigs at the side. I had a video agency. That was my first real business. I started when I was like uh, maybe 12, 13, doing videos for like Pinkberry, I think was the biggest client. Um, that would be recognized by an American audience. Nonetheless, um, I ended up getting introduced to Lisa and ended up talking with her a few times and, and auditioned for this kids news role as like a journalist, a reporter. Um, and I kind of brought this like vlogging style to the CBC and uh, they liked it. And they ultimately uh, brought me on, I think was like the second journalist they ever had basically. So, you know, that was exciting. And I made uh, videos with them. I got to go into their office and conference rooms and brainstorm ideas and then go out to the field and shoot with their producers. And, you know, it was me, right. Who was, um, I was, uh, 
14, 15 at the time when I actually got the, when I actually got the gig. So it was, I was like late 14, I think 15, maybe I was probably around the time when I actually did it. Um, and, you know, I, I was like, go to, you know, work with these producers who were like in their thirties and forties, right. Who had these established careers. And then there was just me. Um, and we were making these videos together about the legalization of marijuana in Canada and, um, you know, hard hitting political news and climate change. It was quite a whirlwind, um, but ultimately taught me, I would say the fundamentals of storytelling. And it also taught me that I'd probably be more interested in covering, um, you know, and, and making videos about, um, you know, content that is probably a little more in line with startups and technology, but, you know, everyone has a starting place and that was kind of mine. And uh, that's, that's the story. Sorry for that ramble. I, I acknowledge that was a little lengthy. No, that's great. The more details, the better. And transitioning here into Mantra, you obviously have experience in creating video content. Where did you get the idea to create uh, Mantra? So what ultimately happened was I finished high school a year early and right after high school, right when I was about to graduate, everyone around me was like, so what are you going to do? It's like, I don't really want to go to college. And one of the angel investors I knew offered me a job at his startup and his startup was making courses for kids, like actual courses. And I spent a year as the head of content of that startup. Um, this is when I just started my TikTok account too. Um, and I was, I was, this is just like in June of 2020. And so I spent a year and this company was my first actual job at a startup per se. I would not consider the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation a startup, probably the opposite. Um, so completely different environments. But what I was doing over and over again was working with course creators, turning their content via my editing skills, if you will, um, and working with the, the, the team at the startup to make it more engaging. Yeah. And sometimes they would even just film videos on their iPhone and we would like, edit those and make them better. And what I realized is it was like, this is actually tedious, right? Like they have a whole video production team that's in charge of converting these videos. Um, and I did this over and over again, but really didn't think too much of it because it was my job and I was not necessarily like, I'm going to leave right now and start a company. Um, but ultimately after a year, I wanted to do something. I was getting a little antsy. I wanted to do something. And the idea did not come to me. I, it took a little bit of time um, to kind of get around to it. But ultimately in September, um, I planned a one month trip to New York. Um, I was going to go to New York, go back to kind of where I grew up uh, for a month, see some old friends, but also like work. And what I wanted to do was I was really interested in media tools, just how can we make video creation easier? That was kind of this, this idea that I was just really obsessed with. And so I go to New York, I get this co-working space, this desk in the meatpacking district at this startup studio slash venture firm called Betaworks. And Betaworks was this early investor in a Tumblr and um, they, they Jiffy and they made um, I think they made this product called Bitly, which is a link shortener, which is relatively popular. And so, you know, Matt Hartman, who is a partner there, a very nice guy, you know, kind of like offered me a desk. Um, and so I was at the studio going to Betaworks. I basically just lived at that office because my apartment was so small. And so I really enjoyed going in there. It was this very inspiring place. And, you know, I was at Betaworks and just thinking like, okay, what, am, what are we going to do? How are we going to make a media creation tool? And what, what happened was that I was working on this site to make narrator presentations. Presentations. Um, the, for, and I originally thought it'd be interesting as a sales use case. What ultimately happened was that that user interface, which um, we modeled after PowerPoint, was very, very, very simple. And I also, and it kind of like 
exposed me to the fact that PowerPoint or, or Google Slides, I guess, is a really interesting user interface um, because I think it's probably one of the most popular in the world in terms of one of the most well-recognizable. And so I used that as the seed of an idea. And I said, well, what if you can actually turn a presentation into a video, right? Like what if it didn't necessarily have to be just a presentation? And what if we actually built a video editing software that looked like PowerPoint? And what would be an interesting use case for this, right? Um, you know, what ultimately happened was I started having conversations with course creators. We kind of stumbled into that niche and just dozens and dozens of conversations. And through those conversations, we learned that video creation is, is a major challenge for course creators, that they can assign a value to a product because they're selling it. And thus that existing screen recording software that they were using to make their courses were kind of subpar because they're not necessarily designed for long form video creation, right? You want more control as a course creator. Um, and this realization was, you know, in part of these conversations and I was pushed to have conversations by a startup studio I partnered when I was in New York, a studio called Creme Digital. And so, and they've been incredibly helpful. I still work with them today. And so, uh, you know, that was kind of the seed of the idea for Mantra. And then what it ultimately became was, all right, how can we lower the barrier to course creation? If you're going to lower the barrier to course creation, you can't just solve for video creation, which is the the biggest obstacle, but you should solve for distribution as well. Like you don't, people shouldn't have to take their videos off your service to host them somewhere else. They should with one click be able to sell them with this very simple landing page that they could paste in their TikTok bio and direct their thousand true fans to. So that was essentially the long iteration process. And I'm summarizing over this relatively quickly, but you know, like in, in hindsight, these things are not super obvious. And so you're kind of just like figuring them out, you know, and like there's still people today who, who don't think it's that obvious. Um, but to me, it is. And to my team, it is. And, and we believe that when you lower the when you build a video creation tool and you allow people to create engaging content, especially in the industry of education, the impact is so dramatic um, because making videos for people from a, for a, from a learning context has maximum impact, right? Making an engaging video on TikTok of a Coca-Cola can exploding while entertaining isn't life-changing, but a good piece of educational content is. And so I'm really a hundred percent, especially as someone who never went to college or whatever, like I'm super bought into the mission of allowing anyone with subject matter expertise to, you know, easily share and create a, create a monetizable piece of content. Um, and, you know, we're just working kind of all day, every day to make that happen. Um, and so that was the, that was the inception story of Mantra. And, you know, where, where it's at right now is we're um, kind of completing our, our beta and we'll be launching that um, in about a month, which is really exciting. That's awesome. And I noticed something that you said that caught my attention is that when you're working at a startup that you noticed creating the videos uh, were tedious with editing and stuff like that. Why did you decide to go through the education ed tech route instead of creating a simple video editor? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it's actually a question that investors ask too, which is kind of funny. Um, well, it's a, but it's a good question. And what I would say to that is, I think when you build something from my perspective, you can go wide and there are products that can go wide, but it's not like there aren't video editors out there. There are. And you know, I think that if you think about the course creator as a persona, that is someone who is incentivized to use and pay for a product because, you know, they're making money as a result. The challenge with going super wide is that you're trying to build something for everyone and thus theoretically pleasing nobody. And you're not really building something where there's a clear business model or use case around. So for example, 
Um, my brother recently, who's in, uh, in high school, did a present a project and wanted to use the software for a presentation he did. And while that theoretically is an interesting use case, he's not going to be a paying customer. His school isn't going to be a paying customer. So what all they're going to do is use it. They, and we may have found product market fit for students, but who's paying for that? The school board certainly won't because he goes to a public school, right? And so he's not going to pull, he's definitely not going to pay for it himself, right? And so, you know, we're all he is to us theoretically is just someone who's going to run up our server costs with, with no revenue associated with it. So there are a lot of people who would want to use it for free beyond a trial. And that just wouldn't work for us from a business model perspective. There are people who may want to use it for a sales use case, but they're going to be asking for more sales specific features. The course creators are then going to be unhappy because now we're building sales specific features. So they may just decide to use a different software. And so you create all these conflicts and it's a good question because we've thought about this extensively, but the, at the end of the day, we believe that by going all in on course creation, um, we can lower the barrier to it and we can actually multiply the number of course creators. So our, our goal internally is to hundred X the amount of course creators. And we think that that's kind of going to be a, uh, something that is like, you know, this, this far, far out there goal, but is really aligned with our vision, I would say, as it pertains to education, our thesis and, and the democratization of education. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it's also associated with a, with a business model, which we believe is more sound than, than going super wide. So that, that, that answers your question. And I um, you know, I would also say like the influence that working at, at that startup that we, when we were making courses manually, like that was certainly an influence as well. And there are also large platforms that allow creators, for example, even large ones on YouTube like Marquez Brownlee, to upload their courseware and to buy their courses through platforms like Teachable. How do you plan to compete with those types of companies with larger market domination? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, I would say. Um, they are different uh, products. At the end of the day, Mantra's at the center of it is this video creation tool, right? Teachable, Thinkific, Podia, they don't they don't have that. And so when you go to use a service like that, you're essentially, they have what we call a BYOV policy, right? A bring your own video policy. The challenge with that is that the video is actually the hardest part to make for the vast majority of people, right? And so you're going to the service and the hardest part when you're confronted with the actual hardest part of the job, there's an upload button. That's basically it to help you out. With Mantra, you actually go to our service and you could record your screen or you could upload slides. You have a lot more control from a video creation perspective. And when you want to publish and distribute, you can download your videos and upload them to those services. But we make it very easy just to publish it with, with one click by stripping away the hundreds of themes and templates and plugins, et cetera, and focusing all our resources on making it very easy to monetize your content. Um, and so I would say Thinkific, Teachable, Podia, right? They're more They're far more robust distribution services. They're like Shopify style, like real website builders. And we're not claiming to be that. We like to call ourselves Substack for course creators, right? Allowing anyone. What Substack did was they took this model of creating a newsletter where you would usually have multiple pieces of software and multiple different subscriptions that you'd have to bundle together, right? You'd need WordPress to a Squarespace to MailChimp or whatever you want to do. And you'd have to bundle them together and set it up yourself. And they just said, hey, look, we're actually giving you no control from a distribution perspective. You can literally choose a color a title of your newsletter and upload a logo and that's it. There aren't themes or templates, but we're giving you a lot of control from a writing perspective, allowing you to easily make a newsletter with the click of a button. 
And we think what we're doing with courses is, is, is uh, similar. And if you see the effects Substack had, you know, it seems like everyone these days has a newsletter um, and it's the go-to for someone who wants to create a newsletter for the vast majority of people anyway. And that's basically what we're trying to do with Mantra, right? Like course creation right now is not an everyday thing. It, you know, the average person isn't a course creator. And I'm not saying that following Mantra, the average person will, but I'm saying a lot more people will be because we're addressing the root problem, which is video creation and distribution is just an element of that. Gotcha. And you're currently building in public with your weekly updates and frequent updates on TikTok. What made you decide to build in public versus in private? Well, uh, it's a, you know, it's a good question and I'm definitely not like the only one doing this. Um, but what I would say is when I sold my TikTok account, um, per the agreement, uh, I was, I wanted to make sure that I had my, I could create another account for myself. Um, that was not business news focused. You know, I'm not really interested in doing that anymore. Right. I've done that for quite a while and I want to move on, but I wanted an account where I can still share videos that weren't separate from what I was doing at work week as an advisor there. And what ultimately happened was as I, I started kind of seeing a lot of people build in public on Twitter. So there's this guy named Andrew and he runs this company called MicroAcquire, yep. which is yep. a startup acquisition marketplace that I'm sure you're familiar with. And he's, le I would say, leading the way with, uh, with building in public. And I would say that that definitely served as an inspiration, but also there's a podcast called startup, um, which is what got me interested in startups by this guy named Alex Bloomberg, who documents the inception of his company, Gimlet Media. It was back in 2014 and he kind of was building in public before building in public was, was even was cool. Right. I, I would consider uh, on my podcast, I interviewed uh, uh, Matt Hackett who co-founded beam with Casey Neistat. And I would say Casey Neistat was building beam in public um, before building in public was even cool elements of it at least. And so kind of, I had the, those, I had Andrew at micro choir, Casey at beam, Alex at Gimlet kind of all in, all in my subconscious, I would say. And I figured that uh, as a video creator myself, which is what I just love to do, you know, I used to think like content and technology had to be separate, but now I subscribe to the notion that every technology company has to be a media company. And phase one of our plan to build a media company is for me to have a TikTok presence and be the face of the company. Um, phase two, three, and four, um, which I just shared with my team uh, via a strategy document um, today is um, you'll, you'll start to see more of, but it does really involve a robust content strategy. You'll start to see a lot more of Mantra via podcasts, um, via the press, um, um, and via TikTok and, and blog, et cetera, really making engaging content about the joys of course creation. I'm not necessarily my brand per se, more in the company's brand, but being a, the go-to spot if you are an aspiring course creator to learn about um, the ins and outs, not just how to use our service. And so I would say like, this is phase one of, of building in public um, showing what I do, but at the end of the day, a company is much bigger than than one person. And as we expand our team, it's relatively important to me that you know more people are highlighted. So what you'll also see on my account more is uh, you know features of of kind of our team, et cetera, um, because they're doing amazing an amazing job and like certainly you know ninety nine percent of the actual work. So you know, I would say um, balancing that out is is certainly on the roadmap. For sure. And to wrap it up here, what are your takeaways for the audience on the edtech industry and your startup? And where can people find more about your startup? Uh, so you can find more about my startup at uh, our site, mantra.co. 
Um, you could join the waitlist via our type form. Uh, we'll be launching a Discord relatively soon, actually, which I'm really excited about. Um, and we'll be onboarding people in about a month. Um, anyone who's on the waitlist uh, will obviously get first first dibs on the uh, product, whether you want to make a course or just try it out. What I would say about the ed tech industry is I'm certainly not an ed tech expert. I've actually just, I'm delving into this industry. And I would say like the realities of it are, it's not the sexiest industry to to work in, I would say, you know, I would have a lot easier of a time, I would say generating venture hype, um, venture capital market fit. If I picked an industry like web three or FinTech, the thing is, I believe what's, what education has to offer is the satisfaction and sometimes a, a wonderful business model. If you stumble, stumble into it, um, the status, but the satisfaction of really actually making an impact and it's corny to say, but at the end of the day, like, you know, is another, uh, there, there are a bunch of, there are a bunch of startups that are all kind of doing similar things, which is totally fine. But I think like when you have a, uh, oftentimes when folks zig, it's not a bad idea to zag. And right now it seems like web three and, you know, there's a lot of hype around that and the blockchain and crypto and fintech and decentralization, which is super cool. Um, don't get me wrong, but I also think that there's still a lot of Still a lot of work to do in, in Web2 and in particular in the ed tech space, um, especially if you believe in, you know, building tools that allow people to teach. Um, and so I would even say we're in the intersection of ed tech and the creator economy because, you know, some of the ed tech startups that I'm familiar with really target schools and professors and more formal institutions. And we're kind of like the rebels a little bit, right? We're targeting folks who don't have degrees, but who have subject matter expertise and want to, you know, monetize that subject subject matter expertise as a side hustle. But at the end of the day, I would say that building for educators, whether it's in schools or independent educators, it it's very gratifying. And I'm, I'm very lucky to be a part of the industry and, you know, hopefully um, actually have an impact. So, you know, I'm definitely not a spokesperson for the ed tech industry and there are some really smart people I would recommend speaking to, but definitely excited to be part of it. That's great. Well, I appreciate your time to coming on the podcast. I wish uh, you and Mantra the best of success in the future. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.